welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. Broken Hill has about 15,000 people, so it's not another ghost town. Whether it's still a real mining town is another matter because the last Australian census from 2016 counted only 460 mine workers. A few months earlier, one of the two remaining mining companies, Chinese-owned Perilia, had laid off 100 workers, and in 2020, the other survivor, Japanese-owned CBH, laid off 70. Perhaps a few people in town are old enough to remember when the Broken Hill Proprietary Company shut down its Broken Hill operations in 1939. The company went on to become the world's biggest mining company, measured by stock market capitalization, but it is physically absent from Broken Hill today and has even changed its legal name to the alphabetically abstract BHP. I think if I lived in Broken Hill, that would have pissed me off. Worried about Broken Hill becoming a ghost town, the city's elected leaders in 1980 hired consultants. And in 1986, Broken Hill became the first town to be listed on Australia's National Heritage List. Iron verandas were restored and sometimes added to old buildings that had never had them. An old hardware store, once specializing in mine equipment, became an art gallery. Many downtown street corners got signs with historic photographs for comparison with the streetscape today. The Heritage Program came too late for the town hall, which in 1974 had been reduced to a parking lot's grand Italianate facade, but the town's post office survives dominated by a brick clock tower. The architect was the man who designed many of the grandest public buildings in Sydney. Perhaps it seems odd that James Barnett should have worked in Broken Hill, but in 1902, when work on the post office began, Broken Hill was the second largest city in New South Wales. Today, it ranks 24th. H.L. Mencken and Mark Twain would probably mock the pretensions of these buildings, but I never claimed that Broken Hill is 100% honest. It's mostly the mines that are honest, and they're hard to miss because the town's gridded streets are oriented not to the cardinal points, but to the line of load. That's the name of the ore body under what was literally the Broken Hill before that hill was replaced by a beveled pile of tailings about two miles long. From the center of that ore body, the Broken Hill Proprietary Company, over a period of 50 years, extracted some 5,800 tons of silver. When the silver was depleted, the company went on to extract 600,000 tons of zinc and 1.3 million tons of lead. Against all that digging and crushing, what's one brick clock tower and one Italianate facade? The Broken Hill Proprietary Company quit working at Broken Hill because the company's mining claims were played out, but small fry, like the Chinese-owned Perilia and the Japanese-owned CBH, are still nibbling at the edges. I went by the Perilia mine, where each morning a hundred men descend a mile, in a cage hanging on a cable, strung over a head frame as tall as a container port gantry. Other men enter the mine in electric vehicles that zigzag down past the mine's 26 levels. Blasting takes place at night, and the men come back in the morning to load broken rock. 
The hoist that lowered some of the men at the start of their shift now brings up the rock. I watched the spooked wheels, as big as those on a stagecoach. They turned so slowly that the spokes weren't a blur. The oar saw daylight for the first time in hundreds of millions of years, then rode on a belt to the end of a boom, where it fell into a black pile as symmetrical as the sand in an hourglass. It would later go to a concentration mill, producing a dust rich in lead and zinc, and eventually it would go by rail to the coast. The residue joined the ever-growing tailings pile that has replaced the broken hill. It was an almost bucolic scene, but I'd decline to join a tour of the mine's underground operations. I'd think of the defunct Junction Mine, which opened in 1886 and operated sporadically until 1972. The main shaft of the mine is called the Brown Shaft, after Sylvester John Brown, who controlled the mine for a while. I walked right up to the Brown Shaft's hoist and touched its open-sided elevator, hardly more than a perforated bucket into which a half-dozen men squeezed before being lowered to one of a dozen levels from 200 to 1,600 feet underground. The men then walked through tunnels up to two miles long to reach a working face. A metal sign posted at the elevator still listed the signal code. One bell for stop, two for lower, three for hoist, and 12 for accident. In tiny print at the top, the sign said, No liability. Close to the hoist, an engine shed sat alongside a solid rock outcrop. A historic marker pointed out that this dark rock was the only surviving bit of the original surface of the broken hill. In the days before the discovery of silver, miners dismissed the rock as Moloch, worthless stuff. In 1883, it became Gossen, rock that indicates valuable ore nearby. 1883 was the year Charlie Rasp came by. Rasp was a German immigrant with some education as a chemist. He came to Australia for his health and found himself working as a boundary rider for George McCullough, a British immigrant who managed the Mount Gipps station a sheep ranch of about half a million acres, including what Rasp was apparently the first to call the Broken Hill. McCullough had laid down the law that he'd fire any man who prospected on the job, and Rasp figured he'd be collecting his time when he went to tell McCullough that he thought he had found tin. To the contrary, within a few days, Rasp and McCullough, along with five other station employees, had formed the Syndicate of Seven, they staked six claims, each covering 40 acres, and clustered near the apex of what would soon be identified as the line of load. The ore body is shaped like a boomerang standing on its points, and the syndicate's claims were at the point where the ore was closest to the surface. A few months went by with disappointing results. Then the mine's general manager had a visitor. In a massive company history, self-published in 1935, the Broken Hill Proprietary Company recalls what happened next. Quote, A man named Lowe handed Jameson, the manager, a specimen of ore, remarking, I found it near your claim. The stone was impregnated with silver chlorides, 
Some bargaining ensued before Lowe consented to point out where he had found the stone. Jameson judged from the water-worn condition of the specimen that it had been washed down from higher on the hill. Accompanied by a black boy, Harry Campbell, who carried a 16-pound sledgehammer, he climbed towards the crown of the hill. A great block, smashed by the boy, revealed the presence of rich chlorides. Subsequent assays, showing over 1,000 ounces to the ton, confirmed the belief that the stone was superlatively rich. That's a hard passage to read. On the one hand, it identifies the moment McCullough and Rasp sensed the enormous value of their property. On the other, it suggests that 50 years after the mine's opening, and at a time when Broken Hill had given many people the dignity that comes with wealth, racial condescension was not only acceptable, but normal. The syndicate floated a company that it called the Broken Hill Proprietary. 16,000 shares were issued at a nominal value of 20 pounds each, with 14,000 of them going to the members of the syndicate. Over the next three years, the company earned over one and a half million pounds sterling, of which more than a third was paid as dividends. A 28th share in the company is said to have traded in 1888 for 1,800 pounds, and to have traded 10 years later for one and a half million. In 1905, after 20 years of operation, a financial statement revealed total revenues of almost 27 million pounds and dividends just shy of eight. That's the equivalent of almost a billion pounds today. Charlie Rasp retired to Adelaide, where he married and acquired a mansion on the north side of town. He called it Williama, the original name for the neighborhood of Broken Hill. It still stands, and a state agent recently called it, quote, arguably the most gracious bluestone residence in the state, with some 14 main rooms of elegance and inherent charm. George McCullough retired to London. On his way out of Australia, he stopped in Melbourne to see Mary Smith, the daughter of one miner and the widow of another. She had worked for McCullough as his housekeeper at the Mount Gipps station. In Melbourne, he proposed. She accepted, and the couple left Australia for good. In London, the McCulloughs moved into a mansion at 184 Queensgate, a block or two from the Royal Albert Hall. They turned their home into a private museum of recent British art. An old photograph shows the McCulloughs sitting comfortably in a room plastered with paintings including Frederick Layton's The Garden of the Hesperides, now held by the Lady Lever Art Gallery near Liverpool. McCullough commissioned a portrait of himself by none other than John Singer Sargent. It's held now by the Boston Athenaeum. William Henry Corbould, a mining engineer who had known McCullough in Australia, dropped by. In a memoir, Corbould recalls that at Mount Gipps, McCullough had been a, quote, dour Scots, where guests ate off tin plates and tin mugs, nor was there any such thing as a tablecloth. The menu was boiled or roast mutton and a few potatoes all washed down with tea. In London, by contrast, McCullough and his wife were attended by a retinue of servants, then one ate off silver and not its poor relation tin, 
and Mercola was lavish in his entertainment of old friends. Still, a photograph of the McCulloughs in their mansion suggests that part of them remained in the back of beyond. McCullough wears a smoking jacket but sits casually with his legs extended and feet crossed as if he doesn't give a damn if his manners offend somebody. His wife sits with her feet on a short stool and her hands in fists on her lap. She looks as though she could teach the entire station crew a thing or two, including George McCullough. The members of the syndicate were smart enough to want the best engineers money could buy, and so in 1889 they sent their manager to the United States to hire his own replacement. He went straight to Nevada's Comstock load and poached William Henry Patton, superintendent of the Consolidated Virginia Silver Mining Company. The mine needed a smelter manager, too, so the manager-recruiter continued to Colorado and recruited H.H. Schlapp superintendent of the Pueblo Smelting and Refining Company. Years later, Patton was described in an obituary as an ardent lover and devoted student of physics and mechanical science, who always came to the front in case of an emergency. Arriving in Broken Hill, Patton put his knowledge to work by showing the miners how to build square-set timbering. This was the method used in Nevada to keep mined-out voids from collapsing. It filled the space with a framework of stout wooden squares that could be stacked like hollow blocks. Perhaps gulping at the cost, BHP had timbers for the squares shipped from Oregon. Schlapp, the smelter manager, was described this way by one of the men who worked for him in Colorado. There never was a squarer and better man to work for. He was an indefatigable worker and a man of great ability, and with all that, very simple and lovable, but we had to attend to our duties conscientiously, or in his mild way he would deliver to the sinner a lecture that was not easily forgotten. Born in Iowa, and educated as a metallurgical engineer at the University of Freiburg, Schlapp realized that fuel costs in Broken Hill were so high that it would be better to convert the on-site smelter to a concentration mill, then shipped a concentrate by rail 200 miles west to the ocean at Port Piri. A new smelter there could run on coal, sent inexpensively by sea from Newcastle, north of Sydney. Patton fell ill after two years and was forced to return to the United States, and Schlapp retired in 1893, but both men were quickly replaced. John Howell arrived from the United States via a mine in New Zealand and oversaw the excavation of a trench 4,000 feet long and 300 feet deep, dug not to reach ore, but to lighten the weight bearing down on the tunnels below. His successor, Alexander Stewart, began the recycling of tailings rich in zinc. The most important man in the history of BHP arrived in 1899. He was Dutch-born Guillaume Del Prat, and he came from the mines of Andalusia, the personnel merry-go-round stopped, and Del Pratt stayed until 1923. A metallurgist by training, Del Pratt helped develop a froth flotation process that gave BHP an efficient way to process the mine's deep ores, which were sulfides instead of oxides. More fundamentally, Del Pratt recognized that even the sulfides wouldn't last forever. Thinking about the company's long-term prospects, 
he oversaw the development of iron mines near the smelter at Port Piri. And by 1915, the company's main business was a steel mill at Newcastle. By the time operations at Broken Hill stopped in 1939, the Newcastle mill was thriving. Forty years later, it too closed. But by then, BHP was busy elsewhere. Thank Del Pratt, or curse him. I mostly thank him because my fine old Crown Vic won't start without 20 pounds of lead in its battery. But I also think of the miner's memorial, dedicated in 2002 atop the line of load. It consists of a simulated tunnel made of rusted steel plates faced with large sheets of plate glass into which have been etched the names and causes of death of the 800 men who over the decades died in Broken Hills mines. Andrew Frederick Bolam had been crushed by shoot door. That's all it says. Thomas Roy Parkin had suffocated. That's all. I visited Broken Hills very large cemetery where some of the monuments aren't so laconic. One, 12 feet tall and paid for by the Miners' Union, marks the grave of Horace Sterling Taylor, who was accidentally killed at Silver Ring Mine by falling down a shaft, December 23, 1889. Taylor was 34. He slipped off a ladder and dropped 130 feet. The cemetery also holds the grave of Percival, or Jack, Brookfield, an immigrant from Lancashire who had spent his adolescence at sea and then come to Broken Hill. He became active in the Miners' Union and helped lead a strike in 1916, which led to a reduction of the work week to 44 hours. He fought against conscription and was fined for this, with an extra fine for cursing the British Empire. Elected to the New South Wales legislature, Brookfield supported the IWW and the Bolsheviks. He also chanced to be at the Riverton station when a man fatally stabbed two people. Brookfield's tombstone says that he forfeited his life at Riverton, South Australia on March 22, 1921, in a gallant effort to save the lives of others. The stone paid for by public subscription, is a tall column with a globe at the top and the still faintly echoing phrase from those times, workers of the world unite. The cemetery was deserted when I came by at sunset. A family of browsing kangaroos stopped, looked up at me, and waited to see who would blink first. Day one. <laughs> 